it's beginning to look a lot like the same old, same old. Next, on Principles and Policies. Welcome to today's edition of Principles and Policies. I'm your host, Barry Sheets, the Executive Director of the Institute for Principled Policy. And along with me today is our co-host, the Vice Chairman of the Institute, my fellow analyst and very good friend, Chuck Michaels. Barry, always great to be back with you here in uh, my little studio that's looking a little decrepit at the moment. i got too much going on. It's your little piece of heaven, and sometimes heaven's a little messy. Uh, well, the, the <laughs> ones we build for ourselves, Absolutely. the real one, uh, not so much. No, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, I don't see any uh, streets of gold or, or – well, I don't yeah. know. I would consider this kind of be a mansion. It's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> if, you've, if, if you've ever had the opportunity to come out to Chuck's place and you've ever seen this, he's got a nice little setup for an office. It's uh, it's like a studio apartment office kind of thing inside well, of a warehouse. Y- you can tell <laughs> – uh, that y- you haven't been around much if you think 450 square feet is a mansion. <laughs> I try not to like have you know too big of uh, anticipations. There you go. <laughs> so there you go. I, I take I take the small things as as being very comforting. <laughs> well, we're thinking about putting an addition on this place of 750 square feet to put some uh, other area in the uh, uh, that isn't warehouse mm-hmm. in here. So. Um, we're looking into that, the costs and such. The costs aren't that bad. It's finishing it off that's expensive. Yes. Yeah, that's usually the case. It's like the upfront doesn't seem to be too no. bad, but the back end's like where everything starts. We've got a little bit of this and a little extra here, and you know, all of a sudden your punch list gets to be yeah. long, you start putting longer than framing, your phone book. Framing and plumbing and, and uh, electricity and... This, that, and another thing, and voila! All of a sudden, it's it's fifteen thousand dollars more than you started out with. Yeah, which is fifteen thousand dollars more than I start out with, anyway. So. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. If you have so. zero, it uh, um, it, it, it adds in, up quick. <laughs> it's an infinite increase. That's yeah, right, because right. as we know, fifteen divided by zero is undefined. Is zero. I think we should talk to somebody at the state health department about that kind of math. Oh, COVID math, you mean? Oh, the, yes, the COVID, COVID math, math where, right. uh, um, you know, cases are are absolutely through the roof, but hospitalizations are up a little bit and, and respirator use is up a little bit. Um, well, and, and Chuck, I mean, this is the thing. If, you're, if the only real information you try to pick up on all the things that are going on around us right now come from the every couple, three-day, two o'clock press conferences that the governor holds – and the COVID dashboard that the state puts out or from the mainstream news media that basically just takes what he says and parrots it. Yeah, uh, it breaks it into different pieces and puts it all back together into a, well... A and sensationalizes kind of, it more yeah. so that they, they can you know, get headlines and get, and get eyes on, their, on the tube. But, okay, here's the deal. It's December, Chuck. And amazingly enough... We don't have any flu cases this year. We have just There's been... There's a few, but yeah. We've been blessed. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle. I'm telling you, if you look at data, the number of flu cases versus previous years is almost like dividing by zero. Yeah. Can't yes. be done. Can't be. It can, but it... It does. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. That's right. Well, and but that's the whole point is there's so much meaning in that meaninglessness. And I say that to say this. It's looking very seriously. Every week we see more numbers coming out, and we're seeing the comparative numbers regarding um, 
how huge of spikes we have in the COVID diagnoses versus how big of troughs that we're seeing in diagnoses of, say, oh, I don't know, uh, the flu or heart disease or other ailments of the upper respiratory tract. Chuck, it's amazing. COVID not only is a murderous virus and killing everybody who doesn't wear a mask, although we know that that's actually the reverse. It's mainly people who've been wearing masks regularly who seem to be more contracting COVID. Go figure that one out. But the point is, is that not only is it killing off people, it seems to be killing off other diseases. (laughs) I mean, maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. Maybe COVID's actually a blessing in disguise for us because, you know, if we have COVID around long enough and, you know, we have such, you know, incredible amounts of plague or you know pandemic or whatever you want to call it perhaps we've unlocked the secret to eliminating heart disease eliminating things like the seasonal flu and you know what if we keep going long enough chuck i'm betting that we can eradicate cancer with covid as long as we keep paying hospitals and doctors for covid diagnoses and covid deaths well here's what's more likely Cancer patients who die because they can't get their chemotherapy will be counted as COVID deaths. Well, and and technically those would be the only ones I would say are legitimately counted that way because they died because the COVID nonsense kept them from getting the care that they needed to have for their other symptom, which is the comorbidities that we talk about. Again, Chuck, a researcher from Johns Hopkins University just released a study, which they're desperately trying to bury right now. Longitudinal study. Mm -hmm. Took a look at the incidences of COVID in the last year and a half, year to year and a half, depending on how far back you want to take the data. um, Remind me to come back to that in a minute, because there's some interesting things here in Ohio about how, about what, when you set your data points, but took a look at that and, and normalized it over time. And do you know that the COVID, if you looked at COVID as a historic incidence versus, say, things like heart disease and other um, maladies, they really all kind of level out. That, yes, we have a new disease that was entered into the lexicon, but operationally, over a longitudinal period of time, its incidences and its yeah potential lethality is about the same as everybody else but one of the things they did notice when they started doing the numbers for 2018 to 2020 is that all of a sudden in the 2019 to 2020 uh time frame the cases of death by heart disease plummeted statistically significantly enough that it's a major anomaly yes and now we're seeing that as we've been hearing chuck that basically the this is this is the first season where we haven't really had a seasonal flu because the cases are almost non-existent because the vast majority of people who show up with symptoms are usually given a test and voila chuck it comes back positive for covid now you and I talked in yeah. a previous program yeah. about how some of this testing is shall we say um how do I be kind about this? Flawed? <laughs> it's beyond flawed. It's flawed on purpose. Now, uh, we need to talk a second for all these people. Sure. Uh, let's, for instance, if you 
have stage four lung cancer. Right. And you also tested positive for COVID and you die. You didn't die of lung cancer. You didn't die of lung cancer. You died of COVID. Right. There, there and, are. And now, see, but then that raises. Now, that gets me back to that whole thing about the, um, the state health department and the COVID dashboard. I'm just using that as a marker. Go ahead. Um, there are, were people, there are numerous, 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 I, I'm too, too many to be a coincidence, of people who said the funeral director came and asked us to list him as a COVID death. Him or her. Right, because there's a because subsidy. Because there's a subsidy. That's right. And, um, and you know what the old saying is, Chuck? You and I have talked about this for a long time. Whenever you subsidize something, you get more of it. Yes, and again, heart disease, same thing. If you die of a heart attack, but you also can, t- can be shown to test positive for or are presumptively yes. infected. Presumptively means... Yeah, maybe you had a fever, maybe you had some symptoms, maybe you had this or that or another thing. That's a presumptive COVID. That's counted as a positive. There are all you're, kinds you're of things. You're positively dead, now, but whether it was from COVID or not is another question. If the person who is being diagnosed is taking a real-time PCR test, RT-PCR, one of the problems with the RT-PCR is that um, if it's done too many cycles, it's done in, in cycles, you, you basically put in a, a, a primer chain and then you start to uh, duplicate it and duplicate right. it and duplicate it and duplicate it. At 30 times, I believe the d- number of duplications you've done of the particular fragment you're trying to amplify is a million. Yeah. Which is enough to find most things. People are being told that they, they've had 38 or 40 or more cycles. I've heard 44 one time. It's uh, okay. one of the ones Here, I've, here's I've what, been hearing. Uh, here's the value of 44 times. Zero. 40 times is zero. Right. 35 is exceedingly questionable. It's now, dividing what, by zero. Yeah. What, what is that about? Well, the fact is that the PCR will take a, a DNA or an RNA fragment and multiply it and multiply it and multiply it to the point where you are just picking up echoes. Sure. There's always stray DNA floating around in your system. Always. Or stray RNA floating around in your system. It's just there. So you're taking these tests and you are cranking them well past their limit. Everybody who's involved in development of the tests in in uh, teaching people how to run the tests and evaluating the test results is saying these 40 cycle and above tests are of no value whatsoever. In fact, the people who are involved in the, the guy who invented the PCR chain reaction has basically said it can't be used as a diagnostic tool. It can't be. He says you can. But that's de- exactly what they're. That's using exactly it for. what they're using it for. So this is bogus. Now, do, am I telling you that nobody's getting this disease and it's fake? No, I'm not saying that at all. There are plenty of people I know. People, uh, very few, but I do know people who have it or have yes. had it. Yes, indeed. Um, it runs anywhere from no symptoms at all, which is usually a, f- a false positive test, or. Uh, even if there's an antibody, um, all that means is you got exposed um, and you built the immunity to it without bothering Ever. to get the 
without ever the, actually ever getting the disease. To, colonized, to yeah. uh, are there people who die directly of the of the virus? Yeah, there are. And you know how many it is of the total number of supposed cases, quote unquote cases. It's tiny. I mean, it's six uh, percent of the deaths were directly from COVID itself. Everything else is a comorbid. So, 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 so they're basically saying that three-tenths of the percentage of the population who contract COVID will die. It's, it's okay, lower so, than that. So, well, well, you've heard the number. The survivability rate of COVID is 99.7%, roughly speaking. So that means three-tenths of a percent of people who get COVID will die. But what you're saying is at 6% of the total deaths, that's about eight-hundredths of a percent yeah. of the people who actually contract COVID die from COVID. Yeah, and actually, the actual numbers are lower than that because here's the deal: if you're if you are under seventy, the percent the uh, uh, survivability is ninety nine point nine nine percent. If you are over seventy, and as you go up in age, it goes down to the point where you're at ninety nine point nine four at the upper end. And and statistically, here's the problem you run into, Barry. We're counting all these deaths. Mm-hmm. The average age of death of a COVID-19 patient is 79. Okay. All right. Now, the average age of death over the entire population of the United States, the average age of death is 79. Amazing coincidence there. Yeah. I, so That's... that's it's amazing how smart COVID is. Yes. It knows exactly who to go for. Now, right. could the thing could the thing mutate and become dangerous to people that are younger? Yeah, probably, but uh, uh, likely? No, 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 because they're already exposed, although we are making a gross mistake. That a number of epidemiologists are saying this. It's not just two, you know... Two guys sitting in a studio with sitting, mics in front of their yeah, face, yeah. Yeah, one guy with a biochemistry chemistry degree that's 30 years old and one guy uh with probably some biology training many many years ago oh i wouldn't i wouldn't Um, even give myself that much credit (laughs) Uh, let's put this um, way one guy who's got a science background the other guy who deals in political bs all day long yeah i uh, think we can sort through it (laughs) bovina fluvia (laughs) <laughs> Bovina fluvia. That's um, right. <laughs> the uh, the fact is that a lot there are a large and growing number of epidemiologists who say we've handled this all wrong. It's not totally isol- ba- it's totally not backwards. isolation. It should be immersion. Uh, what what they what they're talking about doing is they're not talking about sending your grandma who's seventy nine years old with with uh, COPD out into the population. No, the idea is that she gets special protection. Right, but everybody else gets to move but about normally. Everybody else gets to move around normally. Why? So we can get herd immunity. We'll be exposed and not necessarily made ill at a lethal level. That's right. Right. It's all about viral load. It's all about uh, the state of your immune system. I'm going to tell you right now. You should be on large doses of vitamin D, large doses of zinc, quercetin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what else did I hear? Melatonin mm-hmm. has now popped up. Now, now Chuck is not a doctor, nor is he prescribing medical no, advice. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to use that disclaimer right I'm, now uh, because, honestly, you've got some people who get a little crazy. I mean, yeah. you remember when we first talked about hydroxychloroquine as being a potential in the early days of this, and 
the president said something about that because they were finding that this common malaria drug was actually they were when they started running some tests about areas where covid wasn't hitting so hard come to find out that there was a direct correlation about the amount of malarial drug uh, this hydro- hydroxychloroquine that was being pumped into well, the population versus the covid it's not so much that you know what it comes from it comes from studies done over uh, avian flu and some other okay. things as early as tw- 2005 it's been known that hydroxychloroquine and it's uh, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were effective against covid okay all right co- so, when so, i say covid i mean yeah. general the sars the uh, sars sars virus sars yeah. mers uh, yeah. all, all those are all covid uh, viruses um and and hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are effective in stopping that they've known that now for uh 15, 16 15, years 16 years yeah. and all of a sudden we find out this year that they don't work well, yeah they oh, do now work, wait a minute what about all the published data that shows it works against every form of covid well this is novel covid yeah yeah no, no, well, no. they've even stopped using that word now um no folks When's the last time you heard somebody talk about the novel coronavirus? No, I saw it the other day in a paper. Well, I now, read. Th- now they got a vaccine on in in the pipeline, ready to go to force everybody to take it. Well, we've dropped the whole idea of novel coronavirus because yeah, that is, was that's a scare that was a scare tactic to get people feeling like this is some totally unique beast that we've never seen before. It's like no, it's a it's a, you had the flu, you had a COVID virus. That's what the flu is. Welcome. Well, no. Uh, okay. Yes and no. Let's let's be let's be clear about that. See, my the biochemist is, is overriding the the bad, <laughs> really bad uh, non-intestinal that kind of stuff. Yeah. Really bad flus. Um, what they used to call uh, influenza A. Yeah, uh, is a COVID. Yep. Um, the uh, uh, SARS, MERS, um, uh, avian flu. Um, the 1918 flu virus, H1N1, H1N5, all those, those are COVIDs. Right. Uh, the rest are, uh, so, some of them are intestinal bugs, which is, which are different. Uh, some of them are respiratory bugs, which aren't COVIDs. But they're not necessarily considered the flu though. They've changed their terminology. Ah, all of a sudden. I see. Yes. That, that, thank you. You got around to exactly where I was going. To. My, my <laughs> wife had, had something last year. And uh, um, she went to the doctor, and she said, how have you been? And she said, well, I think I had a flu bug. I had, you know, uh, this and this and this and this, all these, mm-hmm. uh, the regular symptoms, you know, fever, runny nose, and uh, a loose stool and, and all that stuff, uh, nausea, vomiting. And the doctor said, oh, that's not flu. Uh, okay. It's not coronavirus. Grant you that, but it's the flu. <laughs> uh, so we're we're uh, they're trying to na- they've been working to narrow that definition down to coronaviruses for yeah. at least a couple years and maybe longer. Uh, so that that's where we we run into some trouble is because as usual when people get used to using certain terminology, somebody will come along and change it and say, see, you were wrong about that all along. All right, exactly, which no. I think is starting to happen with this. Yeah, it is to a degree. And and, and speaking of the, the terminology, and I don't want to take you off your role here, and, and it's a good one, but you know that's the whole idea, that little data point I set for us a little earlier. Here in Ohio, 
when you hear the reports and you hear the, our, the governor come out two or three times a week and trot out at 2 o'clock for his like little press conferences where he does his little song and dance and does his charts, they are go they go to this the corona dashboard this covid-19 dashboard right with the data that's being supplied from the Ohio Department of Health have you noticed that there's a very sleight of hand thing that they're doing that if you're not picking up on it it's easy to be frightened to death it's easy to let them guide you into how to think and you touched on it just a minute ago. And that's the whole idea of the actual death numbers that we have in Ohio. Going all the way back now, remember, the Ohio Department of Health picks the baseline for the start of COVID in Ohio as what, Chuck? Do you know what the date is? Well, the uh, it's in February or something, isn't it? It's January 1st. Of okay. 29, of, of, okay. of 2020, okay? That's their baseline. So all the numbers and all the data they report is from January on. Do you know when the first actual reported case of COVID is in the state of Ohio? It's not until March, I don't think. No, you're absolutely wrong. It's in Knox County. It was in November oh. of 2018. Or 2019, excuse me. November of 2019. Yeah, okay. Early November of 2019. It was reported by the Knox County Health District. It was specifically reported. And then when, uh, I, you know, I work with a number of health free Yeah, now see, you know more they, about this than I they've do. They've been so. asking and doing FOIAs. Knox County Public Health came back and basically said, yes, we reported it. Yes, it was a COVID case. No, the state wouldn't accept it because they decided arbitrarily that the date that they were going to start paying attention to it was January 1st. Now, Chuck, think about it. I know you've had contact with people. Mm -hmm. I know I've had contact with people who all said that somewhere in the fall and winter of last year, they had a flu. That when they went to the, it was so bad when they went to the doctor, but the doctor said, it's not the flu. We're not sure what it is. My niece, but it's who's, not a, the flu. who's a nurse had it in November yeah late November mm -hmm. of last year and not diagnosed I'll, I'll give you this but if since we're playing the presumptive case game yeah if it wasn't a COVID I'd be absolutely drop dead shocked she had all the classic symptoms the respiratory distress cough that wouldn't go away for weeks yeah uh, high fever Okay. Whole, whole shtick. Now, here's my question. If you're the State Department of Health and you're ignoring all the data that has come in regarding this not flu-like flu with all of the same um, symptom triggers as we now know as COVID, but what you don't have along with that is the reports of people dying from it, what does that do to your data? if you were to actually go back to the very first reported incidents and added that data in for what would have been the height of the first cycle of COVID in Ohio. Oh, it completely uh, messes the timeline, which means it completely messes the percentages. And drives them higher or lower of the fatality lower. of COVID? Lower. Much lower. Yeah. 
But if you're trying to gin a population up into doing something that's against their best interest, i.e. shutting down, isolating, wearing masks, and ultimately rolling up your sleeve to get something shoved into your system uh, that hasn't really been tested, what's the best way to do it? Bury the data. Bury the data and and run run a scare campaign. What have we had ever since March of this year? Bury Bury the data, run a scare campaign. campaign. Folks, you're being lied to. Yeah. And I'm not ashamed. I'll say it to Mike DeWine's face. He's a liar. Well, if you'll notice, there's a journalist uh, who regularly... Jack Windsor. God Jack bless Windsor. him. Pray for that guy because I'm sure he's getting an awful lot of pressure oh, you know from an awful lot of places to pressure. shut up. Yeah, tremendous pressure. Um, I'll tell you what, you know, Chuck, like I said, I represent a, a health freedom organization in the state of Ohio. We testified in favor of some of the bills that they're passing about reducing this, the, these health orders because of the draconian nature of the orders and the fact that the data doesn't support them. Like, you and I were just, before we came on air, we were listening to the House floor debate on an abortion-related measure, Senate Bill 27, which basically would provide for humane disposition of the bodies of babies who were aborted. No, we don't do that right now. That's the reason why they end up in landfills and in medical waste and body parts get sold to research facilities in order to generate, oh, I don't know, things like uh, vaccines, Chuck? Because the COVID vaccine that's coming out has basically been made with fetal fetal tissue cells yeah, from aborted babies. Guys, it's part of the industry. But the argument today, a quote-unquote doctor, a physician, a, a somebody who's got an MD behind their name, uh, Beth Liston, who's a Democrat from Dublin, got up and basically wanted she... I mean, you even responded to it verbally. We're sitting here watching it yeah. on, on a feed. And Chuck just went off when she said this one little line about masks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she threw in the mask thing and says, masks, which we know are evidence-based. But the problem is, is that the evidence goes exactly the, the opposite, opposite direction. direction. Yeah. You, know, uh. you talked about changing... The terminology. Yes. What does evidence-based mean to them anymore? It means whatever fits our agenda. agenda. Yeah. That's the reason why I'm going to go back to the Department of Health's website, to the COVID dashboard, and you start looking at the numbers. You have to differentiate those numbers because is it the people who died with COVID or from COVID? Well, you know, the, the numbers that they're reporting are the people who died with COVID, meaning Yes. That COVID was in their system, or even even the COVID antibodies, but prob the the high likelihood is they had at least one, if not a series of other comorbidities that were probably the trigger for their death. But because a COVID test showed, or the presumption, like you said, they didn't even do a test. They just well, we've seen some symptoms. We're sure, sure they got COVID. Those are the numbers that are getting reported at the Department of Health. Yeah. People who died with COVID. That doesn't mean they died from COVID, though. They're not being as honest as the CDC who oh, right, yeah. who who breaks it out. People who died of COVID. Oh, and the governor's fought against breaking those numbers out ever oh, since, the, ever since early April when the guy you talked about, Jack Windsor, started pegging him on it. And he's, he's vehement about the fact that they will not report their numbers that way. No, because you cannot grab control of the economy and the health care system and possibly the presidency. Oh, I'm going to throw that in. Yeah, let's let's folks, face it, folks. Today's a day for like really blunt honesty. Okay, yeah. uh, blunt honesty. Let's stop pussyfooting around here. Let's stop 
lollygagging. Let's get down to it. This whole thing with COVID has been yeah. overblown and overemphasized to fit an agenda that is driving us away from our constitutional foundations. Truth-based rational thought is the enemy of the accumulation of authoritarian power. Well, we can't have that then. That's the reason why we can't have reports like the Johns Hopkins research that showed that COVID isn't any worse or any more significant than any other disease that is killing people in, in in our society. And that what we're really doing is we're masking and minimizing other yeah. serious health issues like heart disease, like the flu, like cancers, like lung diseases. Because if you take a look longitudinally, all of them are dropping. Isn't it amazing how COVID is making us so much more healthy to kill That's us? That's right. Uh, and when you start looking at it that way, you start realizing the absurdity Yes. Of Mike DeWine trotting himself out there two and three times a week at two o'clock to pirouette around and talk about how the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you must give me control, the sky is falling. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm here all by myself holding it up. And by the time this airs on Saturday, Chuck, the governor will have had, had have come to his Rubicon. Senate Bill 311, which is the bill to basically re- end his health orders after a certain period of time and put parameters on it, he either has to sign or let, or veto by tomorrow, which is Friday. We're recording this on Thursday, so Friday, December the 4th. That's his deadline. That's D-Day. Uh, he's either going to cross the Rubicon or he's not. And crossing the Rubicon means he vetoes the bill. But he basically has said, this is now a dictatorship, and the legislature cannot re- rein me in. Now the legislature's pretty fairly confident they can get the sixty vote. They can get enough votes, which is a two third. Excuse me, three fifths majority, to override a veto of a governor on a piece of legislation. Now in the Senate, that means they need twenty votes. Well, they've had twenty four votes on on Senate yeah. on three eleven when they voted it the first time. Nothing much has changed. Honestly, they may lose a vote, so they probably will end up with twenty three. Well, right now the Senate is looking at having 25 Republican members coming in in January, so they got plenty of votes, okay? They'll make that override majority easily. The House is the other problem. The House, when it passed the original bill, it was 58 to 30-something. Well, wait a minute. They need 60 votes in order to override a governor's veto. So why are we even bothering? I mean, the governor should have just vetoed this and been done with it. Well, it was because there were four Republican members of the legislature that were out the day they voted Senate Bill 311, two of whom, at the very least, immediately on their social media, because, well, two they were both sick uh, from things that are not COVID but will probably be counted as COVID by the state, um, both tweeted they were a yes vote on the bill. So, in other words, they know they got 60 votes. Our problem is, in that length of time that they finished the bill and sent it to the governor, the governor's probably had time to work, and there's at least two or three members of the Ohio House who are leaving office at the end of the year, one of whom got voted out of his office, Dave Greenspan, up in in Cleveland area. And it's a high likelihood that the governor's folks are promising him some cushy appointment job if he just do, if he if he can if he can get a handful of other members of the Republican caucus to vote no. Cuz all they need to do is basically lose two. Yeah, he's got to hand out a lot of goodies. 
and he will. And he's oh, got them to hand, he, he has them to hand out. That's yeah. the problem. Um, some of my folks started asking me, well, what about, the, you know, what if, if, the, if the legislature overrides the governor's veto on Senate Bill 311, do you suppose he's going to switch over and go and declare martial law? And I said, well, I'm sure there will be a handful of sheriffs who will line up quickly to arrest him if he does so, because yeah. there's no legitimate reason under the martial law statute for him to do that, no. because the legislature overrode a veto on him. That would be a problem. That'd be a major problem. Remind me to come back to uh, term limits, because this is a direct consequence of Ohio's term limit. Well, roll with it. Go, okay. go for it. Talk about, here, here talk about this, because you're right. It, it is a direct consequence. One of the reasons that the, the governor has the leverage with the uh, the um, political spoilage system yes. that has grown up around Ohio's uh, term limits. Now, I've still got people coming. We've got to have term limits, got to have term limits, got to have term limits. And I'm going, please look at Ohio as an example of what happens when you bring in term limits. Right. Ohio uh, legislators get... How many two-year terms? Okay, they can run for f- consecutively four two-year terms. So they yeah, can, so they can serve eight years, cumulative of eight years at a time. At a time. Okay. So before they have to go do something else. For four years. For four years. and then they. But that something else can include running for the Senate and yes. winning and sitting in the Senate for a yeah. four-year term. Because the House is on two-year terms. The Senate is for four-year four terms. Yeah. So what you can do is, let's say you run in the House and you run two, three, four terms. So you've been there for eight years. You're at the end of that year. That year you're running for a Senate seat, most likely. Because then if you win the Senate seat, you can set just one term. And then if you really love the House more than the Senate, you could try to go back. Usually you end up running for two yeah. terms in the Senate, and then you get into a cycle where the House member and the Senate member are basically from the same district yeah. area. So They're trading seats. And then we've, yeah. and we've got a couple of those that are constantly trading seats in the Ohio legislature, um, especially in the Canton area. Scott Olsliger and Kirk Schuring. Those guys have been flipping seats back and forth. Chuck, they were both in office when term limits were adopted. Yeah. And they're still there, and they've never left. Because their cycles are such that they can easily flip every eight years back and forth. And guess what they've been doing? And when did we get term limits, Chuck? 1992. I was going to say. 1992, 2002, 2012. In 2022, it'll be 40 years of term limits. They will still be in office. Yeah. You've just outlined exactly what I'm saying. Now, why, why do you, oh, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. What if the Ohio Republican Party, who is ostensibly uh, run by the governor, because it's the same deal in at the national level, the head of the party is the governor? Okay, right. The titular the titular head of the party is, is the uh, the state the, the, the state sitting. party chair, but the power behind the throne is the, is governor. the governor. <laughs> okay, right. so the governor has the power to go to the uh, to the state party apparatus and say. Oh, he wants to. He's his. He's almost term limited out in the house, and he wants to run the Senate. No, right. He now can, he can get the party can, to block an endorsement. And yeah. what will happen is, uh, and and people are squawking. The conservatives are squawking because basically a, a liberal Ohio Republican Party comes in and says, not only are we not endorsing you, but we're going to fund your opponent. Yeah, uh, which is by the way against the rules. Uh, they modify the rules, Chuck. Yeah, I know. 
uh, uh, when the rules don't don't fit your agenda, you change the rules. So basically what happens is you either kowtow to the governor or you'll find yourself not able to, uh, A, run for another office uh, at state level. Right. You can run for a recorder or, or dog catcher or... Uh, you, you can know, run for county, county commissioner, level stuff, yeah. But, but but as far as trying to get back up to the state level or even go any higher, forget it. Yeah, not, and you've got that problem, and and then you've got the actual party who's against you, and so the governor comes to you and says, uh, "Well, there's no seats open for you to run for. I like the guy who's in the house. I like the guy who's in the Senate, who's going to be in the Senate in your place. Uh, how about I appoint you to the uh, the Ohio Bureau of Weights and Measures?" to to uh make up a a okay. uh, an agency okay well let me just re- just remind you of something chuck a steading state legislature whether you're in the house or the senate usually makes a base salary of about sixty five thousand dollars a year and if you're a chairman of a committee you get an extra five thousand dollar a year bump so you're making about seventy thousand dollars a year as a chairman the average agency executive in the state government uh-huh Makes somewhere in the neighborhood of one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. Yeah, okay? average. It's usually more. Let's say one hundred and twenty to be fair. What will happen is is that the governor can come to a legislator who he needs to vote with him on a bill to, i.e., kill a veto override or whatever, and can say, you know, we got an opening here because the if you remember, Chuck. Now here's the perfect thing. What did the governor do three weeks ago? He appointed a new director of the Department of Health, right? Yep. Where did he get that director from? I forget where she came you, from. You should know full well because you get their notices about every month. Bureau of Workers' Comp. She was the administrator of the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, and that hasn't been filled yet. Yeah. There you go. So who do you think might be being offered the head of the BWC? Could it be Dave Greenspan? Possibly. Be a nice plum. That's an upper six. That's an upper hundred hundred thousand dollars. So that's like one hundred seventy thousand dollars. Yeah. Your public employees' retirement, which these guys who get into the office can they, they can vest in fairly quickly, and of course, if they served in local government before it, PERS is all of it. It Opers, includes the local. Yeah. Opers includes all the local government my, stuff. Uh, so you can add all that stuff together. My mother-in-law is on Opers. Your retirement is based upon the highest three years of pay in your term of service doesn't matter when they happen it's the highest three years of pay yep okay so if you're sitting there making seventy thousand dollars a year as a legislator and the governor comes along and says i need you to vote on x y and z for me or block x y and z for me and at the end of the year i'm holding open the job of possibly the workers comp administrator that pays one hundred and seventy thousand a year you've just increased your retirement payout by an average of a hundred thousand dollars, because that'd be one hundred and seventy times three, versus seventy times three. Yeah, you know. Yep, yep. And that, it's, that's and it's, exactly what I'm talking and, about. And your payout's eighty percent of those highest three years. Eighty percent. So, Chuck, if you're making seventy thousand dollars a year, that means your retirement's fifty-six thousand dollars a year. Okay, under that under that plan. If those top three years is at your legislative rate, $70,000 a year, that means you'd retire and get paid $56,000 a year from the public employer retirement. All right. But if it's $170,000 a year, that's $510,000 divided by three, which, three, uh, which is going right back to 170. 170 it's $170,000. Yeah. I was joking with you to see if I had your attention. No, but 170 times 80% of that. Uh. 
$136,000 a year. I was going to say around $140,000. I, I do math Chuck, in my head in, in increments. So. Chuck, just that one to, to make a vote or three can be worth $80,000 per year. Yeah, so more than your yearly salary. Extra, ex- extra, extra, extra eighty thousand dollars a year in retirement benefits. Now, if you think about it, if term limits weren't there, that lever is not in the hands of the governor. You're right. If term limits weren't there, he wouldn't hit, because they could still keep running for office, or they could run exactly. for different offices. Because it becomes a gamble at that point. Let's say there are five of those guys sitting there waiting who could be who could step into that position and do the job. Yeah, right. Let's say five, five is not an unrealistic number of people who are term limited out. Um, what are your odds then? Well, if it's everything's completely, if there are no weighted averages, you got a one in five chance of getting that extra money or basically having to go back to private industry. Sure. Which honestly is probably a little bit more lucrative in some respects. Uh, it depends on what depends you, on the what industry. you do. Depends yeah. Depends on the industry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the fact is it's not, it is not, it, there are weighted averages. Yes. Some guys have a better chance than other guys. Um, in fact, the whole point is, is that he wants people brewed out of government. So there might be one or two guys now your chances are one and two, but if you if the term limits weren't there, you would probably look at the odds and say, you know, I'm in a safe seat. I'm going to run again. Yep. That is what happens with term limits. It basically gives these uh, um, essentially executive branch power mongers an extra lever to pull to... Uh, to surround himself, A, with yes-men, guys who will basically do anything he wants them to. Now, normally, you know, the governor is going to appoint somebody who's going to see his agenda. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, you, know, you per, expect they, per, that. Personnel is policy, so yeah. You expect that. But what he has also done at the same time, he has broomed out people who opposed his agenda, even though they're in his party, Yes, in favor of people who have the stamp of approval from the Republican Party who are who is essentially his crony the governor's crony mm-hmm. so basically he's not only packing his 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 uh, regulatory agencies he's packing the legislature this is what's wrong with term limits it, it puts uh, too yes. much power in the parties it puts too much power in the executive branch and what it does is it, it strips good representatives of the ability to continue to sit there and do the good things and oppose the bad stuff. And what it very often happens, some of these guys will come back after their four year sit out in yep. the, in the house and they're a wreck because they don't want to go through it again. Right. They want to be in the legislature, but, and they know they've got eight years to get it done, but they don't want to have the same problem in eight years. So they kowtow. That can happen, yes. Um, we've seen it in a couple of these guys who who were solid, and they sat out there four years and said, "Okay, I'm chastened." Yep, it it can happen. This is what's wrong with term limits, folks. And don't kid yourself that it won't be a a uh, exponentially worse at the federal level if it ever gets through. Oh no, absolutely! It'll it it'll be a nightmare. 
I, you know, you and I used to be on different sides of the terminal tissue, but I, I'm really coming around to that viewpoint. But it was an absolute colossal mistake. Yeah, we've seen too many. We've seen just too many uh, uh, broom outs mm-hmm. of uh, uh, even guys we don't particularly care for who who have done some gutsy maneuvers that are going to make sure that they, they never see elective office at the state level again, most likely. Uh, in this in this particular legislature, uh, at least had the fortitude to say, "Okay, I'm not getting back in. Let's uh, let's wreak havoc while we while we still can." Yeah, well, and they do. Sadly yeah. enough, they do. Now, speaking of wreaking some havoc, um, it, we would be remiss if we weren't talking about the fact that Chuck, when this program airs, it'll be December the fifth. That means that we're three days away from a d-day that d-day is december the 8th and everybody's like well wait whoa, whoa, whoa. isn't december the 7th the, you know the, the yeah. well, yes you're right that's pearl harbor day it's pearl harbor day and we might have the second largest attack on american sovereignty in the history of our country happen on december the 8th this year because that's the day chuck that all the states are required to submit their certified count of electors for the presidential election. Yeah. Could be the second biggest. It may make Pearl Harbor Day look like a minor skirmish yeah. versus the attack that's happening against our governance, against our way of life, against our national sovereignty. If things are allowed to go the way they go, Chuck. If. December the 8th should be the day that we hold an infamy. Yeah. Because you have Georgia, who it, it, it's becoming clearer and clearer every single day that there was a systematic pattern of fraud that is taking place. It, yeah. You have Pennsylvania, where in just one city, there was enough fraud taking place to skew an entire state's ballot. You have Michigan, your old home stomping grounds, who I'm surprised that Gretchen Whitmer is actually the governor. I don't know what she promised people in order to get in there, <laughs> but did did everybody in Michigan like take the weekend off, go to the UP, and forget to vote? Is that what happened? Well, that's not what what needs to happen. All they need to do is basically go to Detroit and say, how many votes do you need? It's it's Chicagoitis. Well, that's exactly what they did during a presidential election. You have Arizona, who is holding hearings on whether or not they had significant amounts of ballot fraud. I can tell you, Mark Kelly's not the the senator-elect. No, he's, he shouldn't be, but, uh, you know, they probably will not overturn it. But the problem is... No, I agree. The problem is, Chuck... It's today is the third we're recording on. This program airs on the fifth. That means three days from the day this program airs, and you hear it, ladies and gentlemen, will determine whether or not we're actually going to be a constitutional republic anymore. Because if all of this election fraud and this ballot tampering is left to stand as is, we no longer have elections. There's no need for them because the outcome's already been predetermined. If we have fellow travelers like the Mitt Romneys 
and yes, I will say the Rob Portmans and the Mike DeWines of the world, who basically, in order to avoid the unpleasantness of say of of, of being exposed, that both sides oftentimes try to trick the systems to their advantage. I think that's the real reason why many Republicans are trying to get Donald Trump to concede right now. Because if this keeps going, it's going to expose an awful lot of the machinery, and some of the some of the parts in that machine are Republican-stamped. A lot of the parts in the machine are... Listen, we've got a local guy who's who's been in office forever. Yeah. Um, it's a, a, a Hottinger. Yeah. He's out there blabbing that, that Trump needs to, uh, to concede. To step down and concede, yeah. And I'm like... Uh, you need to shut your gob and let this play out. Well, where was he? Where was he uh, in two thousand? When was he telling George Bush to concede against Al Gore? That's a different story. You see, that's the whole thing. Yes. The press was demanding that Al Gore not concede in right. two thousand. Do not concede. They told Stacey Abrams, "Do not concede." Right. You can't concede. If you concede, it's over. Right. Now they're demanding that Trump concede. Why? Because if he concedes, it's over. It's over. But if he doesn't concede, he might end up exposing the entire machinations That's of how both parties rig elections. He's he's he knows he's going to lose. I, I'll put that out there. He know mm-hmm. uh, this. This is my belief. It's not a an established fact. This is my belief. He knows he's going to lose. Okay. Therefore, what he's going to do is expose as much corruption, which is exactly why he ran for office in the first place. He's going, and he has really exposed the corruption. Yeah, yeah. And he's going to expose as much corruption as he can before they drag him quick kicking and screaming out of the White House. Why does the idea of Samson in the temple seem to come come to my yeah, mind? So, you know, you brought that up, and I have to <laughs> I have to bring up something. I was talking about this to my pastor the other day. There you go. You remember Benny Hill? You mean the comedian? The, the comedian. The British, Benny, yeah, Benny yeah. Well, there was one where he was dressed up like Samson. Okay. Yeah. Wake up with the loincloth. You could see Benny Hill in this yeah, loincloth. Yeah, and right? Benny was not a, uh, let's put it this not, way, he was not a, uh, sw- a swimsuit model. <laughs> no, he was not. So he's standing there, and he's chained to these these posts, these oh, yeah. pillars. So he gets the idea, is like, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to I'm gonna push the building down. So he gets up there, and he's, like, doing the whole thing with the, the look of strain on his face, yeah. and he pushes it, and the center section of the post comes out, and it falls down on his, his arms. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, oh. So I said, yeah, that's not the kind of Samson thing you want. That's, yeah, you that's want not. where the actual building comes down. That's right. That's right. Well, that's what I'm thinking is, you know, uh, they're trying to blind Trump. They're trying to chain him up. They're trying to drag him to the pillars. But the problem is, is that you drag him to the pillars, he might just bring the whole temple down around your ears. And if I were people like a Jack Dorsey or a Mark Zuckerberg or I'm the political honchos and the Mitt Romneys of the world, I'd be extremely afraid about sending this guy out of office. Because, you know, Chuck, he's been in there. He's dismantled quite a bit of stuff. And I'm sure his folks inside many of the agencies have figured out where some of the pressure points and the weak spots are. It won't be much if he can if he gets out and then his access to all of his billions of dollars to use to, say, create a new media empire, create a new political uh, I mean, think about it. If, if every one of the Trump voters who were really loyal Trump voters, I'm talking the guys who voted for him from 2016 to 2020, and who bleed Trump colors, 
if he were to come back out and say that he was going to run as an, a, a, on a uh, Make America Great party, the MAGA party, yeah. Do you think the Republican Party would would have a ghost of a chance? You have a split in the Republican Party instantly. Instant split. Yeah. Instant split. Probably and, probably and a, give, a, a 66-33 split with the 66 being the conservative end. And giving the amount of inroads that he personally has made to Hispanic and African American communities, you'd see a split in the Democrat Party. Yeah, you, you already saw might. some of you it already this, saw this it. cycle. You'd see much more. Can you imagine these guys going? Well, I'm not going. I'm not becoming a Republican. I'm going over and, be, and doing this. Yeah, it's why the Reform Party, uh, at yeah. least in part, worked. Yes. Now the fact that they ran a whack job for president. Yeah, uh, that was that was a downside. Uh, but and, that and, was the whack job who was funding the party. Yeah. So yeah, you know I like. Well, this. and then and then, we've been in third party politics. Yeah, you right. know how that goes. Yeah, we the the uh, I don't know how many presidential candidates we had because they could fund their own campaigns because they, could, <laughs> because they, because they had money to fund their own. Well, campaigns. think about it too. The the second. Uh, set was uh, Pat Buchanan and Lenore Filani, yeah. which is uh, 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 essentially uh, absolute opposite ends of the political scale. Yes, uh, Pat Buchanan, uh, a uh, uh, conservative uh, libertarian, yeah. and Lenore Filani, a Marxist. I mean... It was, a, it was a match made in some libertarian's mind. A uh, <laughs> match made in the nether regions, shall we say, yeah. Uh, and it didn't work. No. Um, and it couldn't work. Uh, you know, the whole idea was, uh, and then, you know, you, ha- you had governorships that went to uh, uh, well, Jesse, Jesse Ventura. Ventura. Yes. And to be honest, uh, he didn't do too bad of a job, except that the Republicans and the Democrats in the legislature, the only time they ever worked together was to work against it's Jesse, Jesse Ventura. Ventura. Well, think about it. The Republicans and the Democrats in Congress seem to try to want to work together, and some of them some of them do. Let me put it this way. It was worse when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House. Yes. Uh, when John Boehner and Paul Ryan were Speakers of the House, it was much worse. Yeah. The, the one re- thing you have to really look for, the first thing that's going to happen as soon as he steps out is you're going to hear that people are are investigating to indict him for fraud, tax evasion, this, that, and another thing to do to make sure that they neuter him on the front you just brought up. Mm-hmm. And I don't see how he can avoid it. I mean, for crying out loud, he's from New York. New York can find New York is a bureaucratic nightmare and they can find anything they want to find. If he's smart, he'll move his whole operation to Florida. Yeah. My guess is he will. Yeah. He'll he'll, he'll go down to Mar-a-Lago, set up shop down there. Uh it's a business-friendly environment. Yeah. Um no they won't put up down there uh with shenanigans with uh, uh state attorney generals who basically conjure up uh things to uh um you know to indict him for sure absolutely um and uh um you know i i that's what i would do if i were him i would not go back to new york under any circumstances no i I wouldn't either now i know he he made a lot of his money in the new york market and that doesn't mean he has to abandon the market but i wouldn't headquarter there and i think look uh, Trump's not going to take any advice from me. Uh, I have a I have a uh, a small business that does under half a million dollars a year in business. So, 
why would he want to come to me for business advice? And the answer is he wouldn't. Um, and I wouldn't attempt to get the better of him in a business deal. Yep. Zero uh, percent chance that I would attempt that. So um, that being said, things are going to get interesting between now and December the 8th. That's for certain. It's beginning to look a lot like the same old thing, Chuck. Yeah. Problem is, is that we've been through a round of this already. Do you really want to go through another round of it, folks? Yeah. I pray hard this weekend. Uh, a lot of things are going to hang on what happens on next Tuesday. Well, a lot of state Supreme Courts are basically saying, no, you can't fast track this. You have to fast track it. You've got to. You have to. What they want to do is force a certification. Yeah. Which basically, one, then it has to go up to the federal level. We'll see if the Supreme Court's got the guts to go in. Uh, you know, uh, will would Roberts uh, kibosh it? Oh, mm-hmm. in a New York minute. He's never Trump through and through. Um, although he's not. Uh, people keep saying Republican. He's not one. Uh, when If he ever was, he was a rhino. Um, people keep telling me how disappointed they are in him. And I'm like, really? You didn't think this was what it was going to be when George Bush appointed him to the Supreme Court? I said, I remember his first decision. It was a death penalty case in Missouri. And you know what he did as Chief Justice? He made the vote anonymous. Yep. Of course he did. Because everybody knows what the vote, how he voted. Yeah, well, it's not hard to ascertain even with a una- anonymous vote. No. No, he voted. He voted no on the death penalty. Yeah, um, you know for numerous reasons, um, and uh, uh, he has. Uh, let's face it, he has come down on the wrong side way, way, way too much. Like way, way, way too much. But that shocks no one, or sh- or shouldn't shock anyone. Um, he is a George Bush appointee, and everybody says, "Well, see, he's a conservative." No, 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 no. Sorry, no. Just like some of Nixon's, uh, I'm trying to think who Nixon's appointments were that were supposedly conservative. Well, Rehnquist, for one. Oh, yeah. Oh, to the court, yes. Um, uh, There was another one who, quote-unquote conservative, who I think voted wrong on abortion in uh, 73. Um, So that, uh, well, uh, um, uh, the... uh, the first woman Supreme Court justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor was, which was Reagan's, Reagan's appointee, appointee and not conservative by any stretch of the imagination. No, she was a former attorney for Planned Parenthood. For yeah, God's sakes. Yeah, come exactly. on. So, okay, we're about out of time here, Barry. That's what I figured. So, um, listen, we want to hear from you. www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. If you go out and look, you can listen to our old shows. Uh, you can, you, these are available for comment. You don't have to register. You don't have to jump through all the hoops. Just write us a comment. Uh, if you, uh, are abusive, we'll probably look at it and laugh and delete it. Um, or, uh, censor it and, and berate you. Uh, Uh, but if you're nice, I, I don't have such thin skin. I just, I'll laugh at it and just think, well, you know, if somebody has to use uh, that kind of language, that kind yeah. of language, and can't think beyond that level, yeah, 
I, I there's no there's no need to no. engage. So, but if you're if you you want to engage on the subject and you disagree with us, good. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. And uh, we would ask that you join us again next week for another principles and policies.